That was Champion by Bishop Briggs. You're listening to 97.5 WOBN The Wild Card right here in Westville, Ohio, in Otterbein. I'm Noah. I will be your host today along with Nate. Hi, it's me, Nate. You're listening to Retrospection Radio Theater, the podcast element of it, the talk show element. Today we're going to be talking about a lot of things horror. Uh, We're specifically going to be talking about something that is really huge in podcasting and really huge in movies. And that is sound. The way that things and certain scenes sound. And how all of that builds up into the ultimate scare. Or, you know, if you don't have anything, the not ultimate scare that you totally saw coming. The thing is with horror, it is really like writing music. It's just so practiced and everything, every scene is written very similarly. But when you write it right and the music and the sound is good, then it doesn't matter if it's the most cliche thing in the world or if it's just something unique and new. Yeah, it's pretty much just, it is kind of like music. That's a really good analogy because it's like you can tell when people aren't good at it because it just really shows in the music and then anything that happens on the screen. Like, you know, you can watch a bad horror movie and a good horror movie and they probably have the same setup and the same scare, but one is always going to be better than the other one and you can always tell. Yeah, And the same goes for podcasting, uh, especially with something like Retrospection Radio, which is a horror podcast. Uh, We are currently working on season four, working on the scares for that and building up tension. Season four, I'm going to give a little, I'm going to give a little plug and a little hint. Season four is going to be taking place as, uh, unlike the previous seasons, not an anthology. It'll be following a singular character, and then it will be basically this character is a podcaster a true crime podcaster and there is now a serial killer on the loose in his town so he has to go around putting the pieces together of why these certain people were killed who killed them and retrospection radio really likes his horror elements so i've added in a few monsters too just to be uh just to be nice and those will be some of them are the red herrings and some of them are directly tied to the plot it's a little creature of the week kind of deal so that's kind of what i had thought at first that was the plan for the season and then i added in a little bit more than just like all right well this week it's megalodon and next week it's it's a rakshasa (laughs) yeah not quite we did have an episode with a rakshasa uh what is is that so it is a uh i believe it's hindu uh anyway it's from india uh, and it's basically a shape changer that has uh, more demonic elements to it. They're not necessarily good or evil. They just tend to be a little bit more... Uh, like a trickster? Yes. They try to fit into society like a changeling, except that they really do stand out. So, for instance, in the episode in Season 1 that had the Rakshasa the main character goes into an old abandoned house and is basically haunted by previous people who had been there and previous people who he had been talking to. And from there, 
it kind of just like feeds on your fears so gets scared for some reason he thinks uh it's in the basement so or sorry it's on the top floor he so he runs to the basement hoping that there's like a cellar or some type of window or something to escape from that is pretty interesting i like that yeah i so something i've always tried to do for retrospection radio was find monsters and creatures that weren't generic so for instance uh one of my favorite episodes and it's not really uh, i'll admit it now it's not really a great episode when i first started it was high school and i had everybody standing in a recording booth in front of a blue yeti microphone saying their lines (laughs) so the actress uh who played krell i want to say the name was i've had a lot of names in these series uh, she she just stood off to the side or behind everyone, and whenever she talks, she's like, "Watch out, guys! Watch out for the stuff over there." <laughs> Even though she's supposed to be standing right next to him, and you're like, "Alrighty then." Oh man, it's a nice episode. It talks about the Hainosaurus, which is an ancient, uh, ancient seal crocodile-looking thing. The thing that was interesting about Hainosaurus. This came out a little bit, maybe a year or two after Shark Week doing Megalodon. Uh. It lives, or they live, or something like that. And they had that whole real live documentary that was 100% fake with paid actors, and they staged everything (laughs) to make it look like there's a Megalodon going around off Shark Coast. I love that. That's always the best, just when people just absolutely just fool people like that. Oh, yeah. it. So it had happened previously with the Nature Channel doing mermaids, and then they also did dragons. But it was <laughs> so obvious because we know that those don't exist, and also it was CGI'd, and the scientists talked more about how they could have existed. Like, the dragon episodes talked about, I believe it was a miniseries, They talked about how dragons could evolve alongside humans and that dragons started as more of the Chinese-Japanese depictions of them where they're kind of long and serpent-like until eventually as they grew and evolved, realizing that, oh, that's not a really effective way to form. You're just going to be a snake and snakes are... And especially with... (laughs) humans walking around that might hunt you you're going to want to evolve to be bigger or scarier maybe breathe fire or something like that so they then went into the medieval dragons then or like the arthurian dragons yeah going extinct from human hunting that's a pretty interesting take on it i it gotta is say very interesting and the best part was everyone was a paid actor but they acted like real scientists Mermaids did something similar, where everyone was a real actor, and they pretended like scientists, although this time around, they pretended it was real, even though as an audience member, you're watching, you're like, this is clearly not real. Yeah. The mermaids are cgi they're fighting sharks, a shark attacks a <laughs> mermaid, but it's like the great, war- great White, so the Great White comes up from below, and it's death grip. Yeah, it was, it was just clearly bad. But then they made a second episode, or like a second documentary to it, of just the main character from the first one on a fake TV show pretending that they found new evidence and that this was 100% real. <laughs> it, it wasn't good. I love that. That kind of reminds me of like uh, 
kind of like speaking on like the horror subject, it kind of reminds me of this movie called, uh, you may have heard, it's called like Cannibal Holocaust. I have heard of it. Well, to those who haven't heard of it, it's basically, uh, it plays off like it's a real like documentary. It's kind of like one of the first like found footage movies pretty much. And it's about these, uh, this documentary film crew that goes to like the Amazon rainforest and there's this tribe there like a cannibal tribe, and a bunch of crazy stuff happens. I won't go into detail because there's some very graphic things that I can't say. But basically it's just things go very wrong, and they all get killed by this tribe. And it seems like, you know, pretty convincing. Some of it's pretty graphic, some of it's not. But the thing is the director who made the movie made his actors sign a contract that basically said they couldn't be in anything, anything else, no other production, nothing for like about a year or a few years. And so he had to prove to a federal judge that he did not kill his actors because <laughs> people thought it was genuinely real. No, I didn't, I didn't send them to Cannibal Island. Really, <laughs> It wasn't me. You just, you, well, you're never going to see them again. <laughs> I just love stuff like that. So the whole point I was going with uh, with audio in the sense of creating interesting, unique creatures beyond the sea was the second episode, and it focused on the Hainosaurus, which was the prehistoric thing based off. My thought came from Shark Week in the Megalodon Lives uh, special, which then they made a second one, which was just like the mermaid special, the second mermaid special, where the main actor from the first one was arguing on some fake talk show like it's real we found new evidence <laughs> yeah. we're like yeah yeah it, it definitely sure you did pal yeah I'll, yeah we'll, we'll take your word for it thank you random host i've never heard of from tv show i've never heard of on channel that may or may not exist precisely so the thought behind that was to have a prehistoric monster actually get stirred up what happened was a hurricane came by in the Gulf of Mexico, which this doesn't entirely make sense because seamounts are not in that area, but a seamount is basically a small underwater mountain that comes up to right about the surface, a little bit lower, that was formed by volcanoes and the previous ages and all that. So there's no seamounts off the coast of Florida, or at least there's none as big as the one I, I described in the episode. So it's fantasy in that reality. But a bunch of researchers go off to the coast of Florida, find a seamount, and make sure that the hurricane didn't disturb the life there. And as they're there, they find that the hurricane didn't disturb the life, didn't destroy anything in the seamount, but it did stir the Hainosaurus, which was much smaller than the Megalodon. Like I said, it was a basically a seal-crocodile thing. And it is now roaming the waters, uh, this prehistoric monster that probably stayed pretty deep is now here uh, uh, in the sense of it used to have to breathe air basically like a whale or a dolphin style or really a crocodile style and then it evolved to be able to breathe underwater and it's been living there for a while and then yeah so that's the story behind it the thoughts of it uh the sound in particular for that episode I use a lot of waves, a lot of ocean noises, naturally. I tried to put in as much description as I could for these characters as they 
look around, sing. And then I tried to make a whole change in sound. I tried to make the noise of a Hanosaurus, or at least like a monster noise, and throw that all in. There's one moment where basically the entire sea life leaves the seamount, and all the researchers go, uh, but why? They are swimming out at sea. One of the researchers gets attacked by the Hanosaurus, which does like the uh, great white death grip or whatever. Or not a death grip, that's an alligator thing, but comes from below and does the death strike, as great whites do. If you don't know, great whites don't attack head-on most of the time. They go beneath the target and then shoot up and catch the target. If you've ever seen video of great whites leaping out of the ocean and catching something, that's why they're leaping out of the ocean, because they just go low, and then they shoot straight up. Hmm. It's a very interesting way. It's very good because a lot of ocean life has adapted to be able to see to the sides. Yeah. Uh, to make sure that there's no predators next to them. So the great white has adapted to being able to hide below them and I mean, that kind of makes sense because they always attack like surfers and they think they're like seals and stuff. Exactly. So that's the way I did some of the sound for that. I've been working a lot lately on sound. Sound is a part of my minor anyways. So sound is a huge part of everything I do. So today we're going to be talking about the sound in horror movies. Before we get into that, uh, last week... We didn't have an episode, clearly, as this is now episode three. Last week, I was sick, and if you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Tumblr, any of those places, you'd be able to see the latest updates for things like season four, if I'm sick and the radio show is canceled, or something else entirely. A lot of retrospection radio news, along with some horror news in there. So go ahead and follow us at Retro underscore Radio on Twitter and Retrospection Radio on everything else. So today, Nate and I watched a scene right before coming here, and I want to talk a bit about this scene. The scene is in Alien, the classic Alien uh, from 1977, I want to say. I'm not good with time. Ah, late 70s. Yes. It's Ridley Scott, and basically it's a slow burn type movie where... It's kind of like an old dark house kind of movie, but in space. Exactly, yes. So it's basically you spend the first 20 to 30 minutes getting to know the crew. The crew lands on a planet. They find a whole bunch of eggs, go, oh, this must be alien life. And then they start poking it, and a face hugger jumps out and attaches to somebody's head. And then they're like, oh, no, what do we do? So they bring him back to the ship, and then that's where you get the whole chest-bursting scene that's super famous and been parodied a million times. And then it grows into an alien, and there's an alien on a ship full of researchers and scientists who are going, we don't know what to do. (laughs) We research things, not kill things. And it's just one of those things, you know, if you find something that you just don't know, you just shouldn't poke it. Exactly. You should probably shoot it first. Should I would if personally I would just it's like that's a weird thing. I'm gonna go away from that. <laughs> I don't know anything about it. I'm just gonna get it just go far away from it. Uh yeah. It is me. 
horror support person. I, uh, I would like to make it to the end of the movie. So now I walk away from big scary thing that looks like it could kill me. Goodbye. It's like, hey, we should split up. It's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Let's all get face huggers. It's the latest accessory. It's like, you know, I, I, I didn't really feel like being alive anyway. And, you know, and I've always wanted to die with just a little alien baby just kind of bursting out of my chest, you know? Yeah, I mean, if... If it furthers the species, then I'm helping it. They're probably endangered. Oh, yeah. I mean, you see all those eggs that were in the beginning? So I'm going to skip forward. Alien is now on the ship. Everyone's running around going, ah, scary alien. Naturally, as in what seems to be every horror movie from like the 70s, aliens got it, aliens, the thing. Flamethrowers. The crew finds flamethrowers, and they basically say, okay, we're going to go burn it. They also come to the conclusion that the alien is likely using the vents to either nest or transport itself around. So, John Hurt's character goes up into the vents, and the rest of the crew is tracking him via heartbeat, and they're tracking the alien, probably also heartbeat. Looks like heartbeat sensors is what they're looking at. And throughout the entire scene, the entire scene's about minute, minute, minute and a half long, he goes up into the vents with a flamethrower, and you can't see anything besides him and him holding onto the flamethrower. And occasionally he shoots the flamethrower to provide light. And the crew keeps telling him, uh-oh, alien's getting closer, alien's getting closer, the heartbeat is getting louder. It's a very high ticking noise. So something that happens a lot in horror is the higher the noise is, the more uneasy we feel. For instance, in this scene in particular, the high-pitched heartbeat is a constant throughout the scene, just beep beep, beep, tracking him. Then there's an underscore underneath with high-pitched strings, just kind of going... That was probably not very good. (laughs) But uh, it's just providing background ambiance. And he's walking around, well, it's more crawling around the vents. They can't find the alien at first. So the beep is happening and then suspense is building. And then, as an audience member, you hear another beep. And this beep is off of the other one, as in it's offbeat of the beep. That's a fun one to say. Which adds more to the suspense that's being built up because of, you've got a high-pitched beep, now you've got something that's offbeat, which means that it sounds not right. It makes you feel uneasy because, for instance, 1950s music. Normally doesn't sound bad. I enjoy it a lot. However, if you were to slow it down and then change the, not the octave, if you were to change the pitch by like half a step or full step or half step down, full step down, slow it down and do that, or even just slowing down the music makes it sound really creepy because that music is designed to be heard at a certain level so by changing it and slowing it down this normally happy music with a kind of higher pitched happy male singing or female singing is slowed down and now it just sounds awkward because the happiness isn't really there as much it's just slow a little bit lower because it was slowed 
and especially if you add a lot of reverb onto it. Oh, yes. Lots of reverb. So, in that sense, having something offbeat, something that sounds should sound similar to us, but is just slightly different, can creep us out. It triggers our fight or flight to go, ah, this sounds bad. We stop now and run, or we stop now and fight. So with the offbeat beep, the music is still building. And the crew at this point is basically going, it's running down the hallway, it's running down the hallway, it's coming straight to you. The beep is getting closer, and it's cutting between scenes of John Hurt, who's looking down the hallway... The hallway is black, and then he's looking behind him, and the hallway is black, and he lights it up, and there's nothing down either way. So the crew is yelling and yelling and yelling at him, move, move, move. The beep is getting closer, and then eventually the beep is right on top of him, and he's like, there's nothing in this, there's nothing in these vents. There's nothing here, but he's got to be here. So he starts running away, thinking that it's going to pop up in front of him, and he just doesn't see it or something. And then he starts climbing down the vent, and it turns out that the alien was on the floor below him. So as he climbs down the vent, alien just pops out, and it's just, boom, jump scare. Pulls him right in, nom nom. And all you hear is just feedback from his, from his little intercom microphone. Yes, exactly. That's what they do really well is it builds up with all that high t- high-pitched tense noises, the orchestral flares in the background. And then when the alien is seen, it just goes boom. And then it cuts to feedback. So it goes from this really loud noise to basically static to cue the audience that the jump scare that we've been building up is now gone. It's done. It's over with. We've reached the payoff. Exactly. And the static also helps symbolize that he's dead because static is dead air. It's just the So that's a scene that's done really, really well with sound. Something I always enjoy. Do you have anything you'd like to add to that? Uh, I think one of my favorite, just like in terms of not really like how it moves the scene, just how it adds to the atmosphere of the movie is probably... Uh, I think it's from 1976 or 77. It's, it's from the 70s, but it's this Italian horror movie called Suspiria by, uh, directed by Dario Argento. And it's basically about this girl who goes to, I believe, a German dance school. And there's just a whole bunch of weird stuff going on. And everyone is very suspicious. And the music in it is done by this prog rock band called Goblin. And there's a lot of really experimental, like, stuff going on, like tabla, like, eastern instruments, and, like, a celeste, like, which is kind of like a piano, but with bells instead of strings. Like, it's in the Harry Potter theme song. Yeah. So it's one of those. And it really, like, and there's also, like, you hear people, like, singing in the background, just whispering, just going, like, you know, just, like, weird. It's really creepy music, and it, like, it kind of makes you unsettled. And there's, like, scenes where it's, like, playing, and there's, like, these weird drums just going, boom. You know, and she's just running down this hallway, and there's all these bright. It's like it's lit like with really bright colors, like really bright reds and greens and blues and stuff like that. And it just really adds to just like this feeling, just unsettlement. And it's especially since this school's like in the middle of nowhere, and she's just this American girl, and she's just doesn't know what's going on at all. So American girl goes to German school 
a German dance school in the middle of nowhere. What's the uh, what's the horror there? Um, uh, is that there is just very suspicious people that are just very like they don't really tell her what's going on. When she gets there, she sees like someone running through the woods. It's like it, it's like raining, and she sees someone running, screaming through the woods, and like saying like Ah, help me! Ah, ah. and then like. She asks about it, and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Nothing happened. There, nobody's left. Nobody's gone. Nobody screams around here. We all talk very quietly. Yeah, and there's just, like, people are just very suspicious around her, and they just interact with her very weirdly, and no one's really nice to her, and there's, like, one girl talking about, it's like, I've been listening to the people walk around the hall. The teachers, they don't leave the school at night. You know, I can hear them walking down the hallway. They don't. They go to through some door. I don't know where it is, but I think they're... Basically, it's like... I think the people are like witches or something. And they're just like... People are disappearing. And there's this creepy music. And this girl's just trying to figure out what's going on. And eventually she does. And then, like, she overhears these people talking about... It's like, oh, we're going to kill this American girl. She's getting too suspicious of us. She's the onto Americans. us. Americans. <laughs> yeah. We are the Germans. We don't like the Americans. But it's just so effective, just the music. Like, it doesn't... Like, I don't really listen to a lot of, like, uh, uh, like horror film, like, scores and soundtracks, unless they're, like, I'm watching the movie. But, like, since it's just, like, it's pretty much just by a rock band, like, it just kind of sounds like, when you listen to it out of context, just kind of experimental, like, music. I think I heard the soundtrack before I saw the movie. I heard of the movie, but I didn't watch it. So, like, when I saw that, in conjunction like with the soundtrack like in context i was like wow this is like a really kind of creepy movie like and it's very like it's kind of weird to watch too like because it's just very visually just bright color palettes and stuff and just kind of surreal dreamlike kind of things going on so what about her walking or running down the hallway with all the bright lights what in the sound cues you into What's about to happen next? Well, How there's like, sound? there's one scene where this one girl is, uh, like running away from something because, like, there's just this person that's going around killing people. Yeah. Ugh. Naturally. And this girl's running down this hallway, and, like, the music's getting, like, really intense. There's, like, this kind of Eastern instruments going on, and, like, it's, like, really kind of fast-paced. Like, there's these drums going, like, you know, like, and it's just, yeah, and they're just running, and you're just kind of, like, and she's, like, what's going on? And then, like, I'm not sure, I, like, I'm kind of, I haven't watched it in a little bit, so I'm kind of trying to, like, regain the memory of it. But uh, pretty much there's one part where she's, like, running through this room, and she thinks she's found an exit, and then she lands in, like, a pit of, like, barbed wire or something. And she's trying to get out, and then, like, she's just scrambling, and, like, the music's kind of getting more intense, because, like, this, whatever is chasing her is catching up, because you don't see, like, who it is or what's going on, and then, like, I mean, for all we know, this, like, this barbed wire pit is, like, not happening, and it's just whatever these higher powers going on here are just tricking her, because I think she gets to the other side of the door or something, or, like, something comes out and then, like, obviously kills her, and then, like, the next day, like, the American girl's like, what happened to so-and-so? It's like, oh, I don't know. She just left. It was, she was very weird and suspicious, and she... These people live at the school, like, the dancers, or did they get to go home? 
Uh, I think they live there because there's like dorms and stuff. There's one scene where, like, there's like maggots start falling out of the ceiling, and everyone's like has to get evacuated and has to sleep in one room, like in the gym, and they set up like curtains to like portion people off and stuff. And, like, even the staff, like, the staff's like, oh, we'll sleep down here, too, so, you know, we can keep you guys company. And there's, like, this headmistress of the school that no one knows about. And basically, like, you see her on the other side of this curtain, and she's just sleeping, and she's just, like, you hear her breathing, and it's, like, very, like, she's, like, it's, like, (sighs) like, really raspy, creepy breathing. And she's, like, do you hear that? It's like, I've been hearing this breathing. I hear it late at night. And it's that same breathing I've been hearing. And it's like, it's coming from right on the other side of that curtain. I think that's who it is. I think it's the headmistress. And it's like, and you're just like, it's really unsettling because they're just sitting here and Ben, they're whispering to each other. And it's like, and you can kind of tell that I think the movie was like dubbed. Like when it was, because like the acting, the voice act, like they, the voices are a little awkward. But it kind of adds to it because it's like they're talking just like very weirdly, and like. So this is in German, but dubbed in. No, American? it's an Italian horror movie, but oh, Italian, it takes right. place in Germany. But like you just, it's just these weird elements, and especially like you know the breathing, and there's like these weird sighs and whispers going on in the score and the soundtrack, and it's just like it all just adds together to just a very unsettling kind of thing. It kind of is like. It's kind of like the main it kind a lot of it kind of reminds me of the main theme of Rosemary's Baby where it's just like the kind of like childlike like la 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 and there's like creepy kind of I I think it's a Celeste as well and it's just like nursery rhyming is just very 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 unsettling kind of like it's not really like a jump scary kind of movie it's more of just a movie where you're just like what is happening here and like and they're making this girl drink like these weird concoctions because she's starting to feel sick and they're making her do this and they're making her dance until she literally just collapses like in the middle of like the dance lessons and they're like oh you know we gotta it's like she's like i don't feel good like i i really like i have to go lay down and like no you keep dancing you keep going and then she like collapses and then they start making her i think it's like blood or something because she pours it out and it's just like the whole sink's just like red she's like and they, she realizes they're trying to like, do something to her with this stuff. You don't really know what, but like you just know that no one around this school you just cannot trust. And those like the people that become suspicious, they just disappear because they know they're on to something. So the same sense of this uncanny, unsettling feel you get from 1950s music that's been slowed down. You get the same feeling from a higher-pitched child singing, generally. Or even just someone just, like, just kind of, like, whispering, just really echoey, you know, sighing, especially, like, the raspy breathing, you know. It's so creepy when people whisper into your ears. Just anything, just people going, like, la, 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 you know. Just, like, stuff like that. You just And sometimes you just hear people... In the some of the soundtrack, like some of the songs, you just hear people whispering, just indistinct, like thing, just go like blah, 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 in the background. It's just like, and you're just like, what is this music? And it's just like some of it's kind of cool, and there's like synthesizers in it and stuff, and it's just like a whole lot of 
experimental kind of music going on. Like, it's very different. So that's something I actually do want to bring up since we're talking about sound and music and horror films. And this can be found anywhere from, like, the film you were just talking about to 2017's It to, I believe, Saw has a little bit in the soundtrack. So specifically with It, because this is the one I know the best, It has a little child singing at just smallest smallest part uh shining has this too but it has it in just the smallest smallest part of the soundtrack and it's very creepy because there's a lot of reverb oh yeah i know what you're talking about actually right when the film opens you hear that child's voice so something that horror has discovered the high pitchedness to have basically a disembodied child's voice as in you don't know whose voice it is singing and the best part is singing in gibberish, but it sounds like it is something. And that's what makes it creepy, especially to us, because we're hearing a different language and we're going, you know, I'm not familiar with that language. Why and why in particular is this child doing it? And these strings, they are starting to get higher pitched along with the child as they sing literal gibberish. It's kind of like, uh, or even like the beginning of like Halloween like, yes. right after the opening credits, there's, like, some kid singing a nursery rhyme about, like, Halloween, like, something about ghouls and ghosts, and then it just, like, boom, smash, like, just kind of, like, comes out from behind a tree, there's the Michael Myers house, and it's just, like, the POV scene begins and stuff like that, and just kind of drops you right in, it's like, this is Halloween. <laughs> this is Halloween. We... So, Halloween, Halloween. <laughs> so, the great thing about that... At least with it, the director, whom I don't remember at this time, and it it makes me slightly sad to say that, the director had basically told the kid, all right. I think it's like Andy Musietti or something like that. You know more than I do. I'm just guessing. (laughs) Like, that, I could be completely wrong. So the director had told the kid to literally sing whatever gibberish comes into their mind. As loud as they, or sorry, as loud as they could, that certain way into the microphone. And it works. I didn't know that. Yeah, I thought it was just, like like nope. something that was just like a real thing. Nope. Was... Especially in recent horror movies within the past 20 to 30 years, it's just basically, all right, kid, sing random words. And the kid's like, <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> What? What does that mean? And then they add the music over top of it, and you're like, It's like it doesn't matter. What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how the change of a score can just significantly change everything. Even, like, just not even that. Just, like, all you have to do is just have, like, could be a little girl or someone who can sing and sound like a little girl to just kind of go, like, la, 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 you know. Yeah, just like the, the like literally the main theme of Rosemary's Baby is just someone going like, like la 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 la, and it's just like, and there's like this creepy kind of dun 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 dun, and it's just, and you're just like, this is a very creepy and effective theme song. Was that Hitchcock? Rosemary's Baby. No, that is uh, Roman Polanski, gotcha. a very 
a very controversial figure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but he makes very effective movies nonetheless. So I I was thinking about Rosemary's Baby the other day. I'm like, I haven't seen that in a long time. It's been a while since I've seen it. But it is very good. Like it it was one of like the first horror movies I saw in a while that just really made me feel like on edge yeah so there's two more things i'd like to get to before we hit 7 30 and the end of the show i want to talk about the opening to the thing which is it's just my favorite horror movie of all time it's just so amazing and i want to talk the music in that is really effective too yes i've talked about the other scenes in particular that like the blood testing scene and the defibrillator scene and the part with the dog at the beginning. Oh, the yes, that is actually what I was going to talk about, specifically the sound behind it. Not necessarily the visuals, but just how it sounds. So, we start the movie with alien ship crashing to earth and then everything goes black and then the music starts and you just hear the boom boom and it's a heartbeat well it is a drum a kick drum doing the heartbeat and then eventually the thing by john carpenter john carpenter's the thing shows up on screen and the synth starts which is very different from the horror music we've been talking about because a lot of the horror music we've been talking about is instrumental and it focuses heavily on violins which are able to hit those key high notes to make you feel unsteady. But something that's also very common in horror music is repetition, and then breaking repetition, which is why jump scares tend to work, and really why most horror movies can do well is taking the repetition and breaking it. So for instance, the opening of The Thing, which focuses on the heartbeat music, adds in synth. And the synth doesn't go into a high pitch. It kind of stays around the mid, slightly high range. And it basically holds a note and then changes notes. And then there's a counter synth that's playing an opposite note and then an opposite note. And that's pretty much how the entire theme plays out is these two synths going back and forth in these different notes and then the change in heartbeat. So the entire theme itself is between six and seven minutes long, maybe eight. I don't remember. I believe it was six. It's a very, and it's very like minimalist. Like there's very, not a whole lot going minimalist. on, but it's very good. It's like one of the, like, it's just one of the, like a really simple kind of soundtrack. I don't add a lot of movie scores to my Spotify playlist. I tend to add like punk rock and 1950s music and doo-wop and rock and roll EDM but I have The Shining's theme, and I have The Thing on there. Those are pretty good choices. Uh, those are very good choices. There's a couple other horror stuff on there, but really not that much. And The Avengers theme. I like The Avengers theme. So I want to take the concept of that theme, the repetition, and towards the end of the theme, it breaks the repetition the synths change into slight on something slightly faster and the heartbeat speeds up a bit and at that point the helicopter has landed the people have jumped out and started shooting at the dog 
And they're like, you know, shooting at the dog. They blow up the helicopter, kill themselves. And the theme is changed to amplify the new movement that is happening on screen. And it's also changed the repetition. So this song that you'd been listening to that you kind of were starting to get used to is now different. If it weren't, you know, different enough that two Swedish men were flying in a helicopter shooting at a dog as it ran across the Alaskan waste, or Alaskan, the Antarctican wasteland to change the theme again after this landing and the creepiness of like the Americans not being able to speak to the Swedes or them trying to figure out what happened with the dog and then Swedes take shots. All that is reflected in the theme, not with loud percussion hits, which might be more common in a modern horror, but in just the theme itself speeding up to reflect the pace of what's happening on screen. So my next film I wanted to talk about was The Shining. Well, that was really good. This is a really good one. I like The Shining. Uh, Stephen King did not like it, though. He... He was not a huge fan of Stanley Kubrick, uh, Shining. I mean, I kind of didn't understand that at first, and then I like I, I kind of looked into like what the differences between the book and the movie were. They're huge. <laughs> they are very huge, and like seeing the movie and then hearing about the book, it's like I'm glad that those things did not happen in the movie because they would have been nowhere near as effective, in terms of like, putting you in a sense of just kind of dread and, like, helplessness. So, Stephen King went off and made a miniseries of The Shining. And it was bad. It was bad. It was not good. <laughs> it was it was kind of cool to see what Kubrick had left out and just the, the different things that added to the story. Especially, huge, huge difference is Jack is supposed to die at the end of The Shining by blowing up the hotel and that's not how the movie ends at all however this is something Stephen King liked the second one that came out I've got it on my to rewatch list and now I can't remember what it was called was it Dr. Sleep that's what it was Dr. Sleep I've never seen it like was it was it any good you know I was pleasantly surprised I was expecting to go into generic horror movie number 35, but I I think especially Ewan McGregor was a really likable protagonist, and his story is relatively believable. Something that the Shining miniseries touches on that the Shining movie didn't was the fact that Jack's kid, whom I can't remember the character name. Danny. Danny, yes, thank you. Danny is shining. He's got the shine just like Jack did, and he's able to basically see his father's ghost, who, after, you know, going crazy and then was like, no, I'm going to save everyone, and then blow up the building so they could escape. He attends a college graduation with his dad's ghost behind him, and it's very nice and touching, and you know that he's got the shine. Well, Dr. Sleep takes that and alters it a bit. I think Jack, well, yeah, Jack dies at the end of The Shining anyways. So Jack is gone, 
he's dead. And Danny's like all grown up and stuff like that. Danny's all grown up, and he's grown up with a single mother, and PTSD from his father going crazy and trying to kill him. Well, yeah. And also, he's got the shine, which he has it shining better than everyone else. And and there's like people trying to like come and like take it from him. Yeah. So basically, what he does is he can read people's thoughts, understand their emotions, and he would have used it for good, except that he's got that PTSD from his dad dying, so he believes the shine is bad. So he just drinks it away and he suppresses the shine, which means that these people who are basically like vampires, basically vampires, they also have the shine, but they've realized in their lives that, hey, if I go kill other people that have the shine and basically drink their blood or drink their shine, then they become immortal. They can live forever as long as they're getting this substance. So the whole plot is them going around and killing kids and adults that have the shine people who shine brighter than others and then living for as long as they can and then Ewan McGregor is convinced by a friend to Danny is convinced by a friend to like let go of all the drinking and let his shine happen because he uses it to help people he works as a hospital and basically went to people's deathbeds and was able to communicate with them and ease them of their pain by Hmm. basically being an empath and sucking in the pain. And then that drives the villains to go, wow, I smell it. It's on the other side of America, but oh boy, this person shines brighter than the rest. And then go off and start hunting him. And it's a whole plot back and forth. Uh, It's a very interesting horror because it's not really horror in the sense. It's more of a thriller and a bit of action in there too, but there's definitely horror elements in there. But anyways, that's that's Doctor Sleep, great movie. Now I want to watch it. The Shining has a scene where Danny, as a kid, and this is most probably the most famous scene, along with the elevator opening with all the blood. Danny is going through the hallways on a small red tricycle. On his big wheel. Yes, his big wheels. He's got like a little motorcycle. He's going. <laughs> he's doing wheelies. All the other kids there. All the ghost kids. He's doing kids sick are like, drifts. Ah. He's just going. <laughs> <laughs> so what makes this scene so interesting is it's a dolly shot, meaning that the camera is following the person. There's not a lot of dolly shots in films, but when there are, you really notice it. Or at least long dolly shots, and extended really dolly shots. they're really cool looking. They're so cool looking. But basically, Danny is going through the hallway. He's making these turns. Camera's following right behind him until he comes across two ghost kids. The, oh, I got, I know it. The, yeah. The Grady twins? Honestly, don't know. <laughs> I still have yet to understand the shining i haven't done i haven't watched it since so from what i remember is uh because me and my dad we really there's one scene in particular we really like it's when he's uh when jack is in the bathroom and he comes across mr grady who was the previous caretaker who also you know kills the the little girls who were his daughters and he's basically talking about it's like because it's funny the way he says it. He's like, well, I corrected them, which basically means I killed them. 
Now, hey, do you, you think? Pass. And he basically says to Jack, "I think you need to correct them too." <laughs> and he's referring to his wife and his kid. So, I guess basically, because it's just a really funny, like line is just like I corrected them. It sounds like something out of a children's show, like. If you ever watched Avatar The Last Airbender, well, it was on Nick. They couldn't have killing. They couldn't have blood or anything. So a lot of the times they're like, yes, or else I will end everything you know permanently. Hmm. And you're like, uh, you mean kill you? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> like, uh, well, what's happening but it's like, here? It's a really good scene because the way he says it is just really creepy. And he's just like, I you can tell like Jack them. is kind of like almost – you know, he's like, I can't remember. I can't remember. What, Gee whiz, I, that makes sense, bud. Let's go do it. He's kind of like, yeah, I think so. At first, he's kind of apprehensive, and then he's just like, because he's talking to him. He's like, hey, you know, he's like trying to, you know, he's being Jack Nicholson with him. And then he's <laughs> like, and then he goes into it, and he's like, you know, talking about correcting them. And then he's like, and then eventually he's just slowly like, hmm. The character of Jack from The Shining is just Jack Nicholson in real life. They got him as he was a little bit younger before he went psycho bonkers and then came back and refilmed the rest of the movie with him. And by this point, he was actually crazy in real life, so it worked for the role. Pretty much, yeah. He's kind <laughs> of like always played just very unusual characters, even in like... Uh, you can't handle the truth. Even in like Easy Rider, he kind of plays like a real kind of just out there kind of dude. Yeah, Jack Nicholson is just an out there kind of dude. I like. Him. I love Jack Nicholson. He's <laughs> he he's good in almost anything he's in, except probably uh, this one movie he's in that was made by Roger Corman called The Terror, which is basically oh yeah, basically to make a long story short. Uh, oh my gosh, a long story short. Roger Corman was really into making Edgar Allan Poe movies, and he was making I think it was the or the Raven. And he's like, ah, uh, I have like two days left of filming and I have a little bit of money left over. So, and I have Boris Karloff for a couple more days too. So let's film a bunch of stuff and we're just going to make it up as we go along because we still have sets and we have Boris Karloff and we're just going to make up a movie. And he makes it. Was he, that the one that used the fall of the House of Usher, like all of those sets and scenes, and they had those extra time to film, and that's why yeah. they filmed it? And basically, he's like, he's like, I can't do anything with this. He hands it off to like several different directors who are like, I can't do anything with this. And Jack and poor Jack Nicholson. This is before he got famous. He's you can just tell he's kind of like trying really hard to just make this. Jack is just our. He's the audience character. He's just trying to make sense of what's happening in this this mess of a movie. But so what happened was they with Boris Carlyle they had him so they did two or three scenes and then a couple years later just to clear this up a little bit a, a couple years later is when they passed it off to all the directors and they basically I think found even it. Even Francis Ford Coppola had it, and he was, like, not even directing no. at that time. <laughs> not doing this. <laughs> He's like, here, you're a person. Take this. Well, it was just the way that film was. They had all these previous scenes, and then, you know, they had 10 years later. And then Jack they filmed Nicholson more and stuff. All these people, and they're like, okay, we have these scenes. We want to use them. 
We don't have any of those sets or anything else anymore. And there was one scene with Jack Nicholson and Boris Carlyle, and that's about it. Make it work. And all the directors go, oh, yeah? I can't do this. This is too much. It's just, it's just a marvel of a movie. And it's like oh one of the only movies. It's in the public domain, so you can find it. It is now, yes. Literally, it's been in the public domain for a little bit, but you can you can find it anywhere because it is just it's a very bad movie um, the <laughs> reason i know about this there was a youtuber who bought the rights to be able to produce the movie as in or sorry he bought the rights to the script to be able to produce it as a play in his area and he goes you know i don't even know why i bought these rights i just wanted to buy the rights to a bad jack or a jack nicholson film <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh yeah me too actually wasn't it the rights to like? It wasn't even the English version. It was like some dub. No, it was yeah, it was like Spanish or something that he bought the rights <laughs> to, and he's like, I just wanted to have a bad Jack Nicholson movie in my midst. What a mess! Oh, Jack Nicholson. And so, they... <laughs> back to The Shining. Yeah, uh, we've got a couple minutes left here. Basically, the scene is relatively quiet. There's a little bit of ambience music in the background, but the stuff that you really hear is him pedaling the trike. Which is very oily and not not well contained. So it's got a whole bunch of high pitched squeaking as he goes throughout. Which And you as hear we the wheels about, just kinda going over the carpet. Exactly. And that's what we talked about in the previous two films, Alien and The Thing. Well, I guess that's not the previous two because we talked about other films, but Alien and The Thing in particular, Alien has that high pitch. So in this scene you've got that high pitch noise and then you also have that repetition which is the wheels on the ground and it's just the very low pitched and constant until eventually he turns a corner and the two girls are in front of him and he just slams on the brakes and stops and the dolly doesn't or the camera doesn't keep moving like forward an, past isn't it like an orchestral thing goes like dun, 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 dun. yes Yes, at that point, the orchestral stuff is building up. And I believe it cuts to a different scene or somewhere else uh, with Jack, and then it cuts back to Danny, and the music is just blaring. It's very loud. Yeah, like he a turns the corner and happening. he sees the twins, and it's just like, Dah. And when he comes, or, or when it's uh, back to Danny again with the music going loud, the shots are flipping between the twins who go, Would you like to play? And Come play they're... with us, Danny, forever <laughs> and ever and ever. And then it's got the... It flips between them standing in front of him, and then Danny, still there. All of this is from right behind him, right over his shoulder. Flips back to, in this hallway, the basically destroyed bodies of the two girls and, and an fire axe, to axe. The side. yeah the fire axe it's a lot of blood everywhere and then it flips back to them and the music is still just blaring in the background and then it flips back to the corpses and then back to them again and i feel like the reason this works so much is slow build which is one of the other things i wanted to really focus on and hit during our little conversation here we talked about slow build a bit in 
Alien, the sense of all the beeping. We talked about slow build in The Thing with the way that the music just becomes something else over time. But in this sense, it's going to take a note from The Thing and it starts off with that slow build repetition and all that. And it starts to make the audience uneasy because of the high-pitched sounds and the constant low noise like the kind of droning kind of synthesized like dun, dun. exactly and actually that was the next point is they have the theme uh dies eerie that's what it's called so dies eerie is an old is it mozart yeah it is mozart beethoven somebody it's an 1800s piece and it's basically bum 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 bum. So it's this really important theme in musical history because anywhere yes, Mozart's from Mozart's Requiem, the last piece he made before he died, he never finished it. And it inspired so many people. The uh, the force theme has. Uh, a hint of the DS Erie, the shining theme, the boom, 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 is DS Erie. And really, if you sit down and listen to a lot of horror and a lot of, I guess, film scores in particular, they tend to allude to uh, DS Erie a lot, which I'm not sure about why, but it is a very good way to make your music instantly iconic especially with the force theme so the shining has got the boom boom going in the background it's like an aerial shot and it's going over like yeah well that's the that's the beginning i meant for the trike scene they've got the theme song slowly the diaseri slowly playing underneath everything giving it the undertone until it builds up and it gets rid of the repetition and is immediately met with really fast-paced music, which you as an audience member like goes... orchestral sting. Yes, an orchestral sting. Uh, and you as an audience member want to get up and move. You're like, where's the action? What's happening? We got we to gotta do something. Danny's got to run. He's, he's got to escape these people. But the whole time, with all this music going fast, everyone is standing or sitting and looking at each other. And that's it. And I think that's what makes the scene in particular so scary and it breaks this element of horror where it builds you up and says okay here's the payoff here's the jump scare ha just kidding there is no jump scare what it does is just that fast-paced music over top of pretty much nothing happening besides the shots flipping back and forth makes us uneasy it triggers the fight or flight once again, which is really what horror is supposed to do, is make you feel that call to action to do something, run away, stand there in fear, or fight. And yet, the whole time, we don't even get to see Danny's expression, the girls don't really make any expressions, and we can't really see Danny's actions, whether or not he wants to run away or something. I think you see him, his face is just like, he's wide on his mouth, so he's like, ah! I think, or that might be a different scene. But. He, he does later on. Actually, right after this scene, he is going back down the hallway on his trike, scared. But at this point, we don't see him. I believe. 
now I now I'm doubting myself and need to rewatch the scene, even though I watched it. I think two yeah, and a half I hours think you ago. do see his like reaction because he's just like he just looks terrified because I mean. I mean, he's supposed to be in this hotel by himself, and there's these girls he's never seen before, and then he sees them again, and then they're dead. (laughs) It's a very, it is, it is like there are a lot of very effective horror scenes, like the scene where Jack goes into the room that he's not supposed to go in. the The number of the room has slipped my mind. I think it's like two seventy three or like two eighteen or something like that. Yes, number. But in any case, he goes into the room, and he finds a nude woman in the bathtub and then he's like "Ooh, nude woman <laughs> oh my and then it turns out it's an old lady and she's like kind of partially decomposed and then it's just like because he looks in the mirror and it's like you just see her back and there's like all these sores and stuff and it's just like and then he looks at her and she starts laughing and i was just like when i was little when i first watched it i think i was like eight i wasn't allowed to watch that scene but then when i first watched it when i was old enough to I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> I was like, it's yeah, like, well, th- same thing happened with me. I wasn't allowed to watch it when I was little, and I could only watch, like, the TV version. Uh, then I watched it again in high school, <laughs> and Mr. Pater, I've talked about him before, uh, he was getting ready to just skip over the scene. I'm like, <laughs> no, no, we got to watch the scene. So I was really into the movie because I couldn't remember it from my childhood. I'm like, I need to understand the plot and what is happening. And to be honest, I still don't know why that – room mattered so much maybe it was i don't know where he first murdered his wife or ah. i i don't know but there's just like so many me. good like just weird scenes that just like make no sense like there's one scene where i think the wife's name is wendy i don't know but she's whoever shelly duvall's character she's like running around the hotel and she sees like a guy sitting on a bed and there's a dude in a bear costume. <laughs> and it's just like, they don't explain it. They don't elaborate on it, never before or after. And I think they probably touch upon something like that in the book. I don't remember how. But I think it's like briefly mentioned in one scene. But there's just all sorts of things in the movie that just happen and you just don't know why. And it's just so effective. And it's just really just like, you're just like, what is going on? And especially like the scenes where you just see Jack Nicholson just sitting in a chair, staring out the window and his face is just like Jack Nicholson. He's just like, (laughs) he just is, just looks completely dead eyed and his mouth is hanging open. He's just staring out the window and he just looks like he's completely catatonic. I think that's one thing that, with as amazing as horror movies and movies in general are, they were never able to pick up as perfectly as a book does. So, for instance, those scenes probably do have good explanations to why they are there. And they might be explained in the film. But clearly... Or they just don't even happen in the book. And they were just added in. Yeah. And if they are explained... It probably wasn't explained well enough that, you know, I'd be able to remember to this day. But I imagine in the book it's probably like, oh, yeah, so what happened was this guy in the bear costume was the previous groundskeeper and he killed everyone or explanation of some sort. I don't know. I think the explanation was like they saw he's like a scene where it's like there's a bunch of people in a ballroom and he sees a guy like on a leash or something like that. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's in any case, it's like it's one of the only movies that I can think of 
wherein the movie is like almost better than the book because like it's Stanley Kubrick. It's like it's, it's kind of like, hard not to be bad with him. Yeah, like I can't think of a bad movie. I mean, like I think there's people that don't like Eyes Wide Shut. I haven't seen it, so like I don't know. But like pretty much every movie that he makes, people are just like yes, this is, like, one of the greatest movies ever made, and I'm going to make an entire essay of describing why you should like this movie. Ah, uh, yes, what we just did. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm going to go ahead and end us there today. It's been our it's been our allotted time slot. You've been listening to Retrospection Radio Theater on 97.5 WOBN, The Wild Guard. You're going to be listening to High Low by the Unlikely Candidates, and then after that, Cars in Space, Rolling Blackouts, Coastal Fever. Thank you so much for stopping by and listening, and I hope you come back next week, 6.30 p.m. I'll see you on the flip side.